Hello and welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Simon Haslam to talk about decision making for leaders. Simon is Program Lead for Strategy at the Institute of Directors and Chair of the Academic Fellows at the International Council of Management Consulting Institutes. Simon is a visiting professor working on the design of an upcoming IMI decision-making program for senior leaders launching later this year, which we'll talk a little bit more about at the end of the podcast. But today we'll be covering some of the areas that will fall under that program's remit and give listeners a starting point in improving both theirs and their organization's decision-making in the business environment. We'll cover topics such as what clouds decision-making, what role data and gut instinct plays, how to improve an organization's overall decision-making, how to measure the effectiveness of a decision, and how automation and AI might affect how organizations operate in the future. So Simon, a lot to cover. Welcome to the IMI. Thank you very much. So straight into us, what are the differences for leaders when it comes to making decisions in the current environment to say 30 years ago? I think there are two things that have happened. Um, One is the complexity and pace of the external world things seem to happen a lot quicker than they used to and the relationship between things is harder to uh, unravel so there is a a, I guess an ambiguity um, which is is now stronger uh, and a pace the second one is about we've learned a lot more about how people make decisions so we're able to shine a, a, a stronger light on the psychology uh, of decision making, more so than we would have been 30 years ago. And for the senior leaders, is, are those new factors the things that are worrying the most now? Or is there still the traditional unknowables, known unknowns, etc., etc.? Yeah, I, I think the senior leaders get the external stuff. One of the qualities of senior leaders is that, that disposition to say, OK, I'm in the frame to make a decision, I'll make a decision. From my experience, people get the almost the unpredictability of the environment, so that they can work with the data and decisions in the shorter term tend to be more easy to make than the longer term stuff. But organisations need to keep the eye on the longer term. Mm. I think where we're making bigger strides is helping leaders and leadership teams look at the organisational processes and the disposition disposition to make a decision. And how are sort of leaders and organisations as a whole? <clears throat> sort of looking at the decisions they're making, evaluating, measuring them, is that even possible to look at an organisation as a whole and say, this is where decisions are being made, this is how we can improve it? The um, thing that organisations have most control of is the process. So you, you, you try and make the decision leading to the appropriate outcome, but as we would appreciate, it's really hard to call that. So there are so many intervening factors. Mm. So if, a, if an organisation or if a leader thinks about how we have made that decision and work on the process dimensions um, and you strengthen Flexo's muscle around process, then the, the dot, dot, dot is it will hopefully lead to a better outcome. But okay, there are so many causal relationships in place that it's really hard to be dead rock solid about where that outcome is going. So let's, let's look at some of the factors that might interrupt that process. What are those things that will cloud decision-making, will make it more ambiguous? Well, I think this has been one of the technological shifts, technological shifts is that um, there's so much information out there. So that it's, it's, it's not become about how do you get hold of the information, it's what you do with information. And one of the words that sort of we, we home in on uh, in, in our programme is this idea of framing. 
so when you look at the external world, we all bring assumptions to the way you interpret information and what's our frame of reference. So you can give two leaders of the same data and they can have different frames of reference and different interpretations. So one of the key challenges is what, what are the lenses we are looking at the information through and frames of reference. And just one trivial example, Kodak absolutely got digital. Uh, so the demise of Kodak was nothing to do with their not getting digital. I mean, they owned the US digital camera market in the first decade of this millennium without question. Where they got it wrong was their frame of reference of how digital work would work in our lives. So you get it and you don't get it. Mm. So you can see a lot of stuff and if you look at it from this angle you can see it uh, but it leads you to an uh, to, to, to perhaps not a healthy place. Yeah, it's, it's not about have I got the information, it's okay what's my perspective and my freedom to reframe uh, that information. And what are those sort of factors or parameters that you should be taking into your account? I, I presume there's a lot of personal bias as well to reframe your situation. Are there things, factors that you should say, I must think about that when I'm framing this decision? It's a, it's a two-edged sword because organisations who are successful have based their success on, um, if you like, a, certain assumptions and a business model that has worked for them. Now, those might be explicit but they all might be implicit as part of the DNA of the organisation. So one of the big challenges is how do you let go of stuff that has been successful for you in the past? So Kodak's business model was predicated on this idea, okay, here's something and I will then sell you the consumable around which I'll make my margin, which is the repeat purchase. And worked fantastic. Here's a camera, sell you a load of film processing. They took that perspective the underpinning business model in the digital age, believing that we would print off pictures that we'd take with our digital cameras. Uh, so they were the code, the Kodak inkjet printers and the paper, and that's where the margin was. I just wanted none of it. Yeah. And it's really hard to almost unwed yourself of what has made you successful. Mm. So we can say more about bias, and absolutely bias has a massive impact on the ability to make decisions. But there's also this idea of, okay, it's not about the way I process stuff. It's about, okay, the DNA that I've, 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 that I've invested in to build, make this organisation successful. So let's, let's drill a little bit into bias. Mm. So how can a, a leader, I've, a, a leader, all leaders have egos, all people have egos. Yeah. So a leader makes a big decision, big strategic decision. They put their, their ego behind it almost. How can they work into the process that if it doesn't work, they were able to take their ego back out of it and actually say, no, this isn't working. We have to make a new choice. With great difficulty. One of the um, refreshing insights in leadership is a piece of work done by a guy called Freddie Lelou. And uh, he talks about the, the role of the chief executive in the future. And one of the key things about what he suggests of the chief executive of the future is she or he can sort of bury the ego. So one doesn't need to excel, one doesn't need to control one doesn't need to assert and one acts almost in the shadow of the organization as an enabler now that's great but if you look at organizations where to get to the top tier it re requires resilience and determination we encourage a load of characteristics to get to the position and then we say right see that stuff that got you there forget it it's no longer relevant so in terms of bias it is highly likely that everybody i'll meet next year will be biased 
Mm. One psychologist I do a bit of work with, a guy called Dr. Pete Jones, I think when he has looked at bias testing, there's only one person that he's bias tested who is bias free. And he doesn't What's see that the robot. But <laughs> that's what the, the point he makes is okay, she's she's not exceptional as in that this is not the utopia. She's just an outlier on the stats. Um, so if we approach the say, okay, we've all been imbued by biases, it's what you do about it. So the first thing you can do is sort of uh, shine a light on yourself. Two types of bias, unconscious bias in terms of the idea of uh, the way I receive information from another party, typically for unconscious biases, gender, ethnicity, disability, and age. And then the idea of cognitive biases. So irrespective of where this information has come from, what is it about my neural networks that that enable me to skew data? So the first thing you do, uh, I think as a leader, is to say, right, the chances are I'm biased. I wonder where my biases are. Mm. And once you've got that light, light shone on you, to put in place what we call organizational correctives. What does that mean? Okay, if we accept that decision makers need to make decisions and they are biased, how do you put in place steps to reduce the impact of personal bias? One client I've got, they have what's called a four eyes policy. And it's to say that, okay, here's my two eyes, there's the data, I made a call. That call will never get implemented unless somebody else independently has looked at it. So my biases can be mitigated by the biases of somebody else. It's interesting to say that you use the words sort of neural networks. Yeah. If you actually mitigate against that with actual people networks, yeah. you'll be able to reduce your own bias. You absolutely should, and this is so important. Okay, leaders, the ability to make a call, great. But if we can uh, have a situation where that process of decision-making, I I welcome challenge from people of a different persuasion, then the likelihood that my own disposition, my bias, will be reduced because I have to accept data from a different type of person. And interesting, I I think another, uh, people might see it as a silver bullet, big data, to reduce that bias. What are the advantages of big data to leaders when making a decision and what are the, the pitfalls? I think we're experiencing more pitfalls than advantages. One example that I think we shouldn't stray too far away from is Tesco, UK retailer. Mm-hmm. And uh, through the noughties, they would perhaps have the high ground, certainly in retailing, certainly in Europe, around big data. Driven by the chief exec uh, of the time who came from the analytical form of marketing rather than the uh, the extroversion form of marketing and they sort of dined out on their club card which was the idea of the okay we, we gather data from the consumer at point of purchase uh, we build the data picture uh, and they got incredibly good at that but it just reminds us that they fell from grace badly because just because you are great at big data doesn't mean to say you're asking the right questions. Mm. And they, this is sound trite, but they really missed the implications of the global economic crisis on shopping behavior. Because mm. they invested heavily in the idea of the weekly shop, the, the out of town shopping mall. And come the global economic crisis, what did we do? We, we shopped not for the week, but for the next couple of days. We shopped in smaller quantities. Uh, and we all change our, so we, we, we then said, okay, it's all right to go to Lidl and Aldi. Um, so we, we, we patronized the, the lower tier, and then we'll do the treats. 
So we'll, we'll, we'll go and spend three euros on a cappuccino at Starbucks and type of thing. And uh, the data were there. But if you don't ask the right questions, then it, it doesn't serve the organisation. So I think big data, so many organisations are getting better at the aggregation of data. It's still behoven upon leaders to ask the right questions. So if big data becomes smart data, healthier, I think, yeah. And just take that Tesco example. What the sort of, is there uh, an argument there that the four eyes policy that you mentioned before would have worked? And to go beyond that policy, should you always have someone disagreeing almost as a matter of principle in that four eyes policy? I reckon it's really healthy and no brands on this one um, for obvious reasons, but working with yourselves on a program it's very building earlier on this year. Um, a person who had been appointed to the board of one of Ireland's great and good from a, his previous role in, in the civil service at a senior level, he would exactly endorse what you said. He saw his role as a non-executive director was to be deliberately provocative. And the point he was making is that when you get to executive leadership, you've grown up with a certain business model, assumptions uh, which are served you well, somebody needs to be that sort of needle and somebody needs to be challenging and say, how about? Uh, and he said that he saw his biggest contribute to the organisation was not to, if you like, endorse the current practices, but to be the challenger of, okay, yeah, what about if this happens, what, what would we do? And so, totally. When it comes to organisation-wide, we, we talked about the sort of the leaders. Yeah. And we hope that they're motivated. Um, but when it comes to organisation-wide, what role does apathy play? when it comes to people making decisions, even decisions that would benefit them. And where should leaders come down and sort of forcing people to make decisions? Right, two things. Firstly, uh, to pick up on the second point, moral compass. Okay, The more we understand about the way people make decisions, the more we are empowered to, to be influential as leaders. Um, and I would really hope that any leader has got this very strong moral compass. And I suspect in this day and age, if we're not looking at compass regularly, we get found out. Transparency, 24-7 societies, social media, it's really hard for a leader to escape stuff. Mm. So, so the, 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 there's an ethical intent which is appropriate, I'm presuming. Right. The, the second part about apathy, big time. Richard Thaler, Nobel laureate, his work, which is popularised in a book called Nudge, is all about that type of stuff. So if you can choreograph pathways... Uh, one of the things we understand is people are likely more likely to do that which is easier than that which is difficult. Now we know that, it becomes then how we enable people to take appropriate pathways, which is where the moral compass comes in. And there are so many studies about the role of apathy, the role of just laying out the pathway for people to follow and it will lead to. We perhaps think we are cleverer than we are as a species. Mm. So... There's an enormous amount in there, um, but hopefully guided appropriately, because you can guide inappropriately. And, and just let's get a, a few principles there for guiding appropriately. Should you always be transparent? Should you always stick to, like, rather than having an opt-out, you just have opt-in and then people have to opt-out? What are those guiding principles for an organisation that says, I want my employees to do this? Yeah, I, 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 th I think the, the, the idea is... Um, the Institute of Business Ethics guidance on this one, uh, it, it wouldn't be categoric in terms of the opt-in or opt-out, uh, but it would be, say, this idea of being transparent and being fair. 
Now, transparency we get, and fairness, though, is quite a difficult construct because one's interpretation of what's fair varies. But three principles that would be endorsable by, by them would be as follows. Try and do what's best for the greatest number. So favour the consumer rather than the investor. So do what's best for the, for the biggest number. Push at the open door. Uh, so when you're faced with a decision, the open door will indicate, okay, if I'm going to go through this way, then people will probably expect me to go that way rather than that way. So if, if you're going with where the stakeholder groups think you ought to go, then you probably have the most appropriate decision. And then the third one, and surprisingly, is do to others what you would like others to do to you. Uh, so if you're going to drive it this way, would you, in the seat of the consumer, be expected to be driven accordingly? So in the absence of a very strong corporate values, in the absence of an ethical policy, those three maxims, I think, help us and make t- to make that call. Mm. And then when, when you're actually looking at the, the organisation as decisions, presumably organisations are making millions of decisions every day. So how can a leader actually decide what's important to look at, what's important to measure, and how do they find the value in decisions across the organisation? Yeah, it's a grand question. Uh, and I, I, you, I, I'm loving your reference to these millions of decisions every day. And I think one of the things we are recognising that occasionally an organisation will make a really big call. So the eye might, might say, okay, okay, Europe will go further. Mm. So where is our Belgian base? And that, that's a massive decision. But for the most part, organisation strategies are the culmination of lots and lots of small decisions. So we would use the term that organisations have a DNA, which is how we do things around here. And we'd also use the term middle out decisions to say that, okay, what, what an organisation strategy is, is the culmination of, of lots of people at every level of the organisation deciding what to do in the moment. So you fire up the computer in the morning, which email do you respond to first? You've got half an hour, how do you spend that half an hour? Decisions like that may seem incredibly trivial and non-consequential individually but by the time you bring them all together mm. you've got the this is how it really works uh, so I think we're understanding more about the role of leadership is to help organizations make appropriate decisions by this idea of the appreciating the the, the consequence of middle-out decisions and the idea of an organization's DNA the DNA yeah, enables organizations to do a load of stuff and it prevents them from doing other things and um, so this the idea of there are yeah it is about these millions of decisions that an organisation makes, and let's look at those sort of low value, high volume decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just imagining a CEO walking in, discovering that they've been paying bank charges 0.5 percent more than they should, yeah. and over a long time that would be very valuable. How does a leader find that out? Because that's actually quite a specific question to ask. Is there a matrix that a leader should be putting their decisions into a box and saying this is what the value and X plus Y equals Z? You can, you can do that. You, 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 you can look at return on investment. You can look at sort of rational models of decision making. But I'm loving an, an organisation which has got the culture that the, the, the data aren't siloed or pigeonholed. And as leaders, we're incredibly curious. Mm. Uh, so we question other people question we are questioned and I think rather than moving towards the mechanistic approach uh, uh, it's uh, this ability to have working with that sea of ambiguity 
suspending ego to be curious about the data and for people to be able to furnish stuff without fear of repercussion. Uh, and you, you've come across on your travels, organisations would have what's called a blame culture. Mm. So yeah, uh, and it will constrain what I'll share and it'll con- constrain the type of decision. But if you get uh, an organisation where, okay, I can go at risk within my envelope, if you like, uh, and I can be curious and it's a learning process. So it's a cultural thing, I think, stronger rather than the, price, the, the, the mechanistic thing. I can imagine the mechanistic thing could get very messy and complicated as well. Totally. Yeah. Okay. We've begun to enter the age of machine learning, AI. At what point do machines start getting more decisions right than humans and earlier than we think, uh, essentially because we're so affected by bias, noise, all that sort of stuff, even single, as simple algorithms often beat us. So do you think that's going to be actually a key part of most organizations is that, that their computers are making decisions for them? Do you yeah. think it's going to happen earlier than we think? I think it's already happening and we are well on that journey. Uh, so if you look at the fields like uh, insurance, uh, look at f- investments, financial markets, we've got well-developed algorithms who are far more capable of predicting than the idea of human judgment, especially individual human judgment. So there will be that progressive, I guess, data-driven decision-making coming through. Human beings, we don't put genies back in bottles. Mm. So now we've opened it, we're not going to say, this will be detrimental to our employment patterns, let's put it back in the box, it ain't going to happen. So that's a trajectory. I think for senior leadership and for organisations, the one area that we are yet to cross is how we algorithmize, if that's the right word, creativity and decision-making. So the ability to um, think, as the cliche says, outside of the box, these left-field views. We could predict that uh, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, there'll be algorithms developed who can do that really well. We're not to that point yet. So I think in terms of the mechanistic linear stuff, the algorithms are doing a great job already and will continue to do, which means that if you're not if you're competitive in that space and you haven't got that technology in place, you're probably going to find it harder to compete. But when it comes to the more creative, uh, more lateral views, uh, I think this is where human beings have got a great advantage still. And are there any sort of surprising examples? Because often people find it very difficult to bring this down to their levels. So they, they look at Wall Street and say, yes, the stock market, there's lots of machine buying going on. But down at that, that smaller level, are there any sort of surprising examples where you've seen algorithms or machines take over human roles? I, I can't remember the brand, uh, and I'll give you the example. And for me, it is that relationship between the power of the algorithm and the, the power of the human. An insurance organisation based in the USA, their market focus is people who, who ride motorbikes who have had driving or riding convictions. So you might have lost your license for alcohol, you might have had a load of convictions for speeding, and you want to insure a motorbike. And so most insurance companies would run a mile, because mm. here is major risk. But the algorithm has sussed out, okay, if you look at the data, you can price it incredibly sharply, because with the data of them and the, the, these populations, you, you, can, you, you, you can actually price the product incredibly well. So they've honed in on a niche uh, and they're incredibly competitive and appealing for people who, yeah, but bikes, but my, 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 my riding driving record's not pretty. Now, that's great. So the algorithm serves. 
but it took somebody to say, mm. you know what, here's a market opportunity. So you've got the data, you've got the, 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 the process of the data, but somebody needs to call in. Uh, so I'm loving, I love that example because it says, yeah, it plays to where technology has taken us, but it also recognises the power of saying, yeah, why this, not that? Yeah. yeah. You talked a little bit about speed there. Um, I'd like to talk about speed versus accurate. Obviously, VUCA world, all that sort of stuff. So is speed becoming more important in getting decisions right? And if so, when can a leader know uh, to take that plunge rather than just sort of wait for the, the, the complete information? Yeah. Speed is putting greater pressure on organisations. Three things to say. You don't need to make a decision until you have to. Now, it sounds trite, um, but so many organisations would have, uh, say, an annual rhythm. They, they, they do strategy, make decisions and all that kind of stuff, then action plans. I think one of the key questions for a board is, do we need to make this decision now? So as one of the two most important words in strategy, the two words, why now? Okay. Uh, so to make a decision is part of the way that a leader demonstrates heft in an organisation. And it's probably as strong not to make a decision, mm. to have the conversation. It's, it's where ego plays into it. Oh, well, it absolutely is. So you can, you, you, you can absolutely applaud conversations that go around the houses without leading to a decision because you probably don't need to make a decision. So suspend the ego. The second is that increasingly there is a gap between the information you need to make of the decision and when you need to make it. So you then get into how do we design organisations to reduce that gap. So if we take one of the things that organisations do well is to generate value through scale. What I mean by that is you, you latch onto a recipe and then you try to sort of magnify that recipe either by volume by doing more of it or by value by, by doing the greater added value in what you do. So if you look at Starbucks, I mean they latched onto a recipe, okay, it's about Americana, it's about Latte, it's about cappuccinos, uh, it's about airs of high football, football, and we'll sell a few pastries and such like. That's right, and you scale it quick. So organisations can scale. So maybe there's part of an organisation which has a pathway of decision-making around scaling. And maybe there's another part of an organisation that says, okay, got scale stuff going on over mm -hmm. here, let's experiment. And if we have those two conversations going into an organisation, and uh, I think they're different conversations, because how you make decisions around scale are very much different to how you make decisions around framing data and experimenting. So it's having a balance of power and tensions. Oh yeah, it, it absolutely is. Working with one particular financial organisation and as working in the Channel Islands, um, the island of Jersey, just off the French coast, and we were talking about this very thing. And my client says to me, yeah, we are doing the scale part and we've got a team of people in Copenhagen and they do the experiment part. Uh, how fantastic is that? Because there's a different type of decision making there. And once they've experimented, once they've sussed out the new, then it can scale it. But if you try and almost confuse the two, you've got two different conversations going on, two different skill sets, and it can become difficult. So you almost want the ambidextrous organisation. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, we're, we're getting near the end now. So how should a leader persuade and influence those around them um, during the decision-making process? Are there any techniques leaders should follow or general philosophies? Yeah, no end. Uh, and with eyes open, we're incredibly skilled at influencing. We're incredibly skilled at manipulation. 
so I think in terms of this understanding of, okay, here's the armory. Uh, am I good at all of these techniques as a leader? And am I using them from the right effect? So we're all pretty good at getting people to do stuff. And now we know that's within our gift. Just to recognise how we frame things, how we orientate people. Be careful with what you ask. Uh, and so it's uh, yeah, the influencing comes as no surprise to us. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I mentioned this at the beginning. You're here as part of the development of the new uh, decision-making programme for senior leaders. Can you give us a quick glimpse into what that programme will be? Yeah, really excited about about this. We were having a discussion about this very subject yesterday. So myself and Dr. Kriti Jane, we're working in parallel and together on this programme. Um, so it's 10-week, various learning development modes. We're going to be working with senior leaders and there are going to be three workshop days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and myself and Kriti will be taking leaders through various perspectives, germane to senior level decision making. And between workshops, there is individual and group work to do. Um, so the focus of the programme is we're going to lift the lid on the, the understanding about sociology, psychology, the neuroscience. We're going to look at that, the application. So if this is what's going on here, what does it mean for practice? And what we're talking about is contemporary research for contemporary leaders. Uh, so it's about we, we, this is about the here and now. And so that translation from what you'd expect the IMI to do. So the, the, the yeah, thought leadership, uh, the concepts, and then that translation into practice. So, yeah. It's very exciting. I've read the materials and it, it, the, the methods behind it. It looks fantastic. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for coming in. Good, thank you. Superb. Thank you.